0: Big Swinging Stocks acknowledges the traditional custodians of Australia's lands, skies and waterways and pays respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Welcome back to another episode of Big Swinging Stocks, folks. Make sure you like, follow and subscribe so you never miss a minute from us. We're back this week with an episode of Invest Lacker with Michael Kemp, an investor and a prodigious financial writer. He's been referred to as Australia's answer to Warren Buffett and he's with us this week with his book, which is already number four on the Australian's bestseller list and has made the Amazon bestseller list within minutes of being sold, which is an incredible feat, sold out before lunch on the first day. Welcome to the podcast, Michael Kemp.
1: Hi there, Alex. Thanks very much.
0: It's a pleasure having you on. Given you've spent so long, so much of your career, I should say, in finance, tell us What was your first financial or first investing memory? How does this all go back for you?
1: Yeah, my first investing memory was when I was 11 years old. I remember buying a corporate debenture. I worked as a paper boy. At 11? Yeah, six days a week. I used to get up out of bed before I started school, deliver papers, and I saved my money and I bought a corporate debenture. So that's my first investment. It didn't move the dial, but I've been investing seriously in stocks since the mid-80s.
0: That's incredible. You'll have to tell us later what a debenture is. But 11, boy and obviously budding investor. So I can see why there's the Warren Buffett comparison, because clearly this was something on your mind at the young age.
1: I wouldn't even stoop to tie up Warren Buffett's boot laces, to be quite honest. I don't think that's a comparison that I'll live with. I have so much respect for the man.
0: So tell us a bit about your career. So how did it all come about to today?
1: I actually, Alex, strangely graduated as a dentist from Melbourne University and realized very, very quickly that it wasn't satisfying my passion. So I did an MBA at Monash, got a job in the financial markets with Bankers Trusts there just before the crash of October 87. Worked as an interest rate liability manager at the Wheat Board, and then I worked in corporate finance with Potter Weiberg, working in Melbourne, Sydney, and overseas. But I've also worked 10 years as a financial analyst and writer, and I've written three investment books. But I've always been passionate about investing throughout my entire adult life. It's something that I'm very, very, very passionate about.
0: What is it about it that attracts you to it?
1: It's the intellectual challenge. A lot of people think investing is purely about making money, but for me, it's a lot more than that. For me, it's very, very much the intellectual about philosophy, psychology, mathematics, accounting, and history. I'm very passionate about financial history. So it's the education side. And because it's such a huge, huge thing, huge, huge area, I've never stopped learning.
0: Oh, that's really lovely. So let's talk about your book. You said you've published three. The most recent one that I think just came out,
1: yeah, a, a few weeks, weeks ago. A few weeks, few weeks ago, ago is yeah. the
0: Ulysses contract. So you're going to have to, speaking of education, explain to me how the title came to be about.
1: Yeah, I look, I came across the term a couple of years ago and I just thought it was so appropriate to finance because very, very quickly, Alex, this, the story of Ulysses, he's a character in Homer's epic poem, The Odyssey, which was written 700 years before Jesus Christ was a boy. Ulysses is the king of a Greek island called Ithaca. And the part of the story that most people remember is when Ulysses is returning home to Ithaca after the Trojan War. He's about to sail his boat past an island that's inhabited by sirens. And those sirens sing beautifully and lure sailors to sail their boats onto the rocks and to their deaths. So Ulysses told his men to put wax in their ears so they couldn't hear the sirens. But Ulysses wanted to hear them himself. So rather than placing wax in his own ears, he asked the men to tie him firmly to the ship's mast. So he knew that to resist the seduction that he was about to be exposed to, he needed to put something in place now that would stop him from behaving stupidly later on. And I thought it had perfect application to financial markets because a lot of investors start their investment journey with good intention. But along the way, there are so many hazards, which I refer to in my book as financial sirens. And I identify each that divert your attention away from what should be solid and correct investing. And I I actually, the last chapter of the book is about a Ulysses contract that you can put in place that will help you stop falling prey to all the financial sirens are out there.
0: So a lot of our guests we ask about their investing philosophy, but yours is clearly around almost investing mindset. So let's talk a little bit about those oh, sirens. Yeah. What are oh, they? Oh yeah.
1: Oh yeah. What you say is so true, Alex, because when I started investing, I thought it was all I came at it like a scientist. I thought it was all about maths and accounting, but it's not. It's not just that. In fact, there's a small part of it. The biggest part is appreciating the psychology of the investors that make up the market. And I identified many sirens, but the most powerful ones, the ones that deceive us the most are often generated in our own mind. And that's exactly why investment great Ben Graham wrote in his book, The Intelligent Investor. The investor's chief problem and even his worst enemy is likely to be himself humans don't think straight. And it even gets worse when money is involved. We're irrational, we're biased, we come to conclusions far too quickly. And then when we come to that conclusion, we seek out information that confirms it. I love that old saying, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. And at the center of my book, I'm driven by what the German Karl Ludwig Born wrote a couple of centuries ago, losing an illusion makes you wiser than finding a truth. So I hit a lot of illusions. I drag them kicking and screaming through a sieve of logic in the book. Another internal siren is emotion. When you're fearful, you can't think straight. When you're greedy, you can't think straight. When you're angry, when you're upset over a financial loss. And the problem, of course, is that humans are extremely emotional and they get even more emotional around money. Another one's the crowd. We are influenced by the crowd. Now, the stock market is like every other market. It's made up of people. And where there's a lot of people that make up a market, a prevailing sentiment can become unified. Frenchman Gustave Le Bon wrote a book called The Crowd. and in it, he said, in crowds, it is stupidity and not mother wit that is accumulated. In life, apparently, there's safety in numbers, and that may work in the wild. It may work when someone cries out fire or someone's running around with a knife. But when it comes to the stock market, it's not necessarily the case. I mean, I saw it firsthand in October 87, Alex. I was on the stock market floor on the 20th of October 87. And for those of you who don't know what happened that day, the Australian stock market plummeted by 25%. It's the biggest one day percentage fall in history. Now, 25% is not a number. It's a gut-wrenching emotion. And there was total capitulation that day. But the interesting thing about it is why did the Aussie share market fall 25%? It fell for no other reason than the US market had collapsed by 23% just hours earlier. We just blindly followed. So you could ask the question, why did the US market collapse? You'd think it'd be a case of Captain Obvious, wouldn't you? But in the four months following the Wall Street collapse, there were six independent US investigations in effort to determine its cause. This is after the fact, and they didn't produce a single defining explanation. It was just a simple case of mass hysteria. Now, I could go on about that, but I think I've said enough about that. Let's hit a siren that new investors really fall for other than emotions. It's people who make predictions. I'm talking about economists here.
0: My favorite horoscope tellers, yeah.
1: I mean, some of the most seductive sirens are economists, but I want to single out the ones we see on TV and we, we read their reports in the paper. They sound convincing. You know, they, they're they usually articulate, they're usually well-dressed, they know all the O'Connor babble, and we don't know what the future holds. And here's someone who sounds like they do. I love that quote from financial historian John Kenneth Galbraith. He said it well when he said, there are two types of forecasters, those who don't know, and those who don't know that they don't know.
0: To quote Donald Rumsfeld.
1: <laughs> yeah, he had a similar quote, you're right. But I usually say about economists, when they come on TV, use the time constructively, get up from your chair, go to the kitchen and make yourself a cup of tea.
0: Speaking of trying to avoid the siren call of economists, you yourself just mentioned new investors. So I want to know in your experience, you're a very seasoned investor. You've been through a number of market cycles. A lot of our new investors are experiencing a change of macroeconomic conditions for the first time, they're going out of a growth period, you know, like they're experiencing a market cycle for the first time. What do you recommend they do? Get their friends to strap them to a ship or put wax in their ears? Like what's the modern day advice to young investors?
1: I wouldn't be guided in my investment by macro. I just don't. I just shut it all out. What is my advice? If you're young, if you're in your 20s, 30s, you've got an investing career, hopefully of, you know, 40, 50 years ahead of you. And not just when you retire, it continues after you retire. You need investments to maintain your life during retirement. Don't second guess where the economy is heading. Don't second guess where the stock market is heading. No one knows. The best thing to do is to save regularly, invest what you don't spend and do it consistently over a long period of time and let compounding of your returns, do the heavy lifting. lifting, I should say, not listing, lifting.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about your investing approach. So we talked about philosophy. Let's talk about how you've actually put this into practice. You started with corporate debentures. You've been investing for a long time, but let's talk a little bit about the makeup of your portfolio. Before I get into this, of course, this is not financial advice and we can talk in general about the types of assets that make up your portfolio.
1: I'm a great believer in shares. A lot of people can't handle the volatility of shares, but it is normal that there is volatility. And I've learned to accept that because I have a mindset that I've developed over years that I basically ignore volatility. And I've got some tips in my book as to how to not let it affect you. And I think we should talk about that in a minute. But my philosophy from a relatively young age, I would say when I was 30, so for the last 35 years, has been to work out how much I could save realistically without destroying my life. You need to live. I mean, I had a good time, but I consistently saved a regular amount each month and I consistently put it into the stock market. Now, I've got property investments, but I haven't been as excited about them as my stock investments. I think over time, stocks do deliver a better return because the last 30 years in property has been absolutely freakish. So my main thrust has been in stocks I worked as an investment analyst, so I was a stock picker. That's not an easy task, by the way. I wouldn't recommend that people new to the game think that they can select stocks. But there's a simple way, Alex, to invest in the stock market. It's through index funds. I'm a great believer in it. And interestingly, since I've stopped working as a financial analyst, I've shifted a lot of my portfolio into uh, index funds, ETFs.
0: Wow. And in terms of the split, you're an Australian. So I have to ask the question, how much of your portfolio is domestic as a percentage?
1: It used to be mixed. I mean, I had a lot of Berkshire Hathaway Class As. The price of them has gone through the roof. So I did have international stocks, Berkshire, the rest were Australian. And I sold my Berkshire shares During the COVID-induced plunge, because our Aussie dollar dropped to 55 cents against the US, I thought it was a very timely time to get the money back into Australia due to what was a favorable exchange rate. So I'm I'm 100% Australian now. And that's because of the way it's taxed. I don't like the double taxation in the US. I know you can get taxation credits, but you're still taxed at a corporate level.
0: So predominantly shares and predominantly index funds as well. For someone starting out, is that what you would recommend? That they avoid stock picking as a siren call in and of itself and just stick with good quality index funds.
1: Yeah, I broad-based. Broad-based.
0: So not thematic, low fee, whole low fee.
1: Yeah, ones that actually invest in the broad-based index. Yeah, yeah, not sectors. If you understand a sector, then do. But the problem is when people enter the market for the first time and it's a new experience to them, they start panicking about the volatility. It scares them. I embrace volatility. I see it as an opportunity. It doesn't scare me anymore. I've been through the the 87 crashes. I had a lot of money in the market during the global financial crisis of 2007 to 2009. And I remained fully invested right through that. I didn't sell. Obviously, the more recent plunge in March 2020. Jeez, if you blinked, that was all over, wasn't it? But I find times like that actually exciting, stimulating, much to the merriment of some of my friends. They go, how come you're so happy? I said, oh, this opportunity everywhere.
0: So the most fun you have investing is during periods of tremendous market uncertainty.
1: Not uncertainty, after it's plunged. Total capitulation to me is obvious. It's when people just toss in the towel. There's that classic cover of the US Investment Magazine in, I think it was 1974, and the whole cover just said the death of equities after the crash. That rang the bell of the start of the greatest bull market that we've ever experienced. It's when there's total capitulation, when people are miserable and they swear off shares, And it's really hard to fight that emotion yourself, feeling the same way, because we are social beings. We take in the feelings of others and start to feel that way ourselves.
0: How interesting. You've been investing now for decades. What is your portfolio yielding this year?
1: Typical returns. I mean, there was a time when I was outpacing market returns. But anyone who reads my book will see. I actually question whether that was skill or luck. Because I think true skill is a very, very rare beast, and it's difficult to prove. What is my portfolio yielding? Pretty much market returns, which is about 10% with inflation, nominal, 7% real. But it's never in a straight line. It's, It's just not in a straight line. I have good years, I have bad years. So you don't take last year's return as an indication of what you're going to get long term.
0: Yeah, that's a really tough lesson for young investors, especially for a lot of them. Like there was a huge influx of investors into the market. And after that, one for anyone that started investing in 2020, you would have experienced insane growth.
1: Mm. The market where people who have experienced it over the last 30 years is really distorted at the moment. It's the property market. January 1990 the overnight cash rate in Australia was 17.5%. And as we know, last year it dropped to a low of 0.1%. I'll tell you why that's such so distorted and how it impacted property. It's so distorted because that was the highest interest rate in two or three millennia, and it was the lowest rate in two or three millennia. Anyone who has been alive since 1991 has experienced the highest interest rates on record and the lowest. And we all know that how do you afford a property? You borrow money. Interest is the cost of using someone else's money. So the affordability of houses since 1990 has gone through the roof. But I really, really feel for the generation that is trying to buy a new house presently. What really gets on my goat is to hear baby boomers, those between 46, born between 46 and 64. So I fit in there. Saying, ah, oh, back in my day, I went without this and I went without that, and I didn't have Smashed Avocado on toast, and I did you know, and I saved up the money. They're dreaming, Alex, because houses were far more affordable. Even though interest rates were high, I bought my first house for sixty grand.
0: I think it's a combination of everyone can only relate to their own experience. And so my grandparents and and your generation and my mom's generation, like my grandparents are Post war babies, but they experienced these great returns in the property market. And yes, they did sacrifice and they worked very hard, but they cannot compute the asset price increase, like the debt to equity. Like, you know, they were maybe a three to one debt to income ratio. We're now talking about 12 in Sydney for a lot of people.
1: And you know why they can't, Alex, is because they don't have a handle on history. I mean, if you look at long-term property returns, and there's, there's a great study by a guy called Peter Schultz. He conducted the study in the 70s, and he looked at long-term property returns. I'm talking about since the 1600s. Properties pretty much track with inflation. Now, my first property, no, my second property actually, which I bought in a nice suburb here in Melbourne, I was 20, how old was I? I was 27 years old. Now let's put this into perspective. Twenty-seven years old, and I bought a nice property in a nice suburb in Melbourne. It cost me one hundred and forty-seven thousand dollars. That sold recently, a couple of years ago, for four million. Land value because they're bulldozing the house. Now, you tell me what twenty-seven-year-old can afford a four-million-dollar house? They'd need a, a deposit of eight hundred grand. Who can save that up at that age? And they'd be making repayments for what, a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year. To tell me that the property market is because people can't save properly these days is an absolute fiction. I feel sorry for young people.
0: The gaslighting in the media needs to stop as a first stop. But the reality of the situation for young people is that there is very little that can be done outside of political will to change the house pricing situation.
1: I'll tell you the lucky ones, Alex. I'll tell you the lucky ones, the lucky millennials the ones whose parents recognize it, recognize the issue, and actually help them buy a house. They say, I've had this massive windfall. It's your turn now. I'm going to help you buy a house. And I don't think that is being soft. I think it's being fair.
0: I would agree. I think there's a real cultural insensitivity towards help as Australians. I think culturally, we really buy into the idea that if you just battle hard enough, you can play the game and win but the stakes in the game have gotten increasingly more difficult. But I think as young people before you start saving for a house, we've got to get a little bit more financially literate. Investing has to be part of the conversation, be it investing responsibly in your superannuation, by, you know, consolidating your super, not having 100 accounts, etc., but also by investing in your brokerage and having that form part of your overall financial health as you think about starting to save for a property. I think a lot of us don't start thinking about investing until our mid to late 20s and by that point you've lost a lot of time and quite frankly you're already starting to accumulate expenses that you didn't have in your early 20s when you were living at home. Don't you think,
1: Alex, part of it is when you're young, the hurdle just feels too high. It can be very easy to be beaten before you start because you go, how am I ever ever going to save a deposit like that?
0: I agree. I think there is a generational apathy that politicians and society is going to have to account for because a lot of young people are saying it's too difficult and opting out of the whole enterprise. But the problem with that is that the system is not set up to deal with young people not having homes. Our superannuation assumes you have a paid off home at retirement. The whole system is predisposed and is predicated on this assumption, which is increasingly tenuous, that you have a home. Our rental laws incentivize home ownership. That's why we don't have long-term leases. That's why tenancy is in favour of landlords. Our superannuation system assumes that you have a home at retirement. It doesn't assume you're going to draw down 200k to pay off your mortgage. Our tax system assumes you have a home. The capital gains tax and the stamp duty concessions that come with first home ownership and selling a home, downsizing a home, all in favour of home ownership. So there's a much bigger holistic conversation that needs to happen around how we deal with this.
1: The situation will ultimately self-level, but that doesn't help the current generation I mean for example those figures I gave you before of my house that cost 147 became 4 million I just cranked some figures out on that the other day that's a compounded annual return of 10% Now over that period inflation ran on an average of 3 for houses to outstrip inflation by 7% compounded over a period from 1985 to 2002 is ridiculous And that's why they've become so affordable. And the reason is because interest rates have plummeted from seven and a half down to zero. So it was a natural force tailwind behind prices where affordability wasn't about interest rates. It was about the capital value. Now, it will right itself with time, Alex, but not in a hurry. And I wouldn't be thinking about property prices over the next 30 years having anywhere near the capital gain they have in the last 30, but how does that help people now looking for a house? And that's why I think some baby boomers who can afford it need to step up for their kids.
0: Yeah. Well, they're the same baby boomers that disagree that it's harder these days.
1: They've got no perspective. They've got no perspective, Alex.
0: I agree. And I think, it, again, it, like I said, I think it's difficult for them to put themselves in our shoes when they're not living the life that we are they're not facing into these problems the way their children and grandchildren are.
1: I have a 31-year-old daughter who's recently married, recently had her first child. Gee, I can put myself in her shoes. I've had this discussion with her many times and I won't talk about what I'm doing on a personal level to help her and her husband, but I just feel that it is the right thing to do. Gee, we got off on a tangent then, didn't we? We did.
0: We went really down the property route.
1: We were on the same soapbox, I can see. Yeah.
0: I think the outcome here is that young people should utilise whatever means they have available, whether it be investing, whether it be asking your parents for help. You know, getting wealthier is so, so important to financial stability, be it through property or investing and just generally good financial habits. So for anyone that is interested in finding out more, I think the Ulysses contract is available at all good bookstores and on Amazon.
1: Everywhere. Even Big W has picked it up.
0: There you go. Folks, you can pick up a copy of the Ulysses contract at all good bookstores, including Big W. Uh, and Michael, thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode.
1: That's okay, Alex. Loved it.
0: Pleasure. Speak soon. And thanks folks for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by SelfWealth and operates under AFSL number 421789 as general advice only. Because we can't take into account your personal objectives or financial situation, you should seek independent professional financial advice before making any investment decision. For more information and our financial disclosure statement, check the show notes.